Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, episode 109, Jesus in My Place. Well, today you're going to get to hear an interview that I did, uh, gosh, I think it was about a month ago, and I just haven't gotten around to publishing, uh, with my friend Dr. Steve Jeffrey uh, on the topic of penal substitutionary atonement, which he discussed on a recent episode of the Unbelievable Program with uh, Justin Brierley. But uh, before we get to that, it's been something like three months since the last episode, and so uh, maybe I can catch you up a little bit with how things are going in, in my life. Um, Previous uh, In previous episodes, I had mentioned that uh, my wife was pregnant, and I asked you for prayers for uh, for a healthy birth because uh, our previous pregnancy, um, we lost our baby. And um, uh, this time, I'm, I'm happy to report we're about 26 weeks in, and the baby's very happy and healthy. Uh, that is, if his um, kicking is <laughs> any indication, uh, he's constantly giving my wife grief. Uh, and as I just mentioned, or as I just indicated by using the uh, the, ter- the word his, uh, this will be our uh, fourth boy, fifth if you count um, our previous uh, pregnancy. Our fourth boy uh, came to term, and we're going to name him Miles Christopher, uh, which is kind of cool. <laughs> I, li- I like the uh, the middle name there for obvious reasons. Uh, but I-, I would please um, ask you for your continued prayers. Uh, you know, everything is going great, but. Lord, you know, your, your prayers would be very uh, appreciated. We're due in, uh, or she's due, I guess I should say, in early September. Uh, so we've got a few more months to go. And, um, you know, we, we definitely appreciate your prayers for a healthy birth. Uh, also in previous mention, uh, episodes, I had mentioned that I was trying to get back in shape for something called a Spartan race. Um, but I've got to be honest with you, I continue to struggle with my health and with my weight. I've put on uh, more and more weight because I haven't been able to, well, I don't want to make excuses, but uh, I haven't been able to, um, I haven't properly prioritized exercising at the gym and stuff like that with an increased workload uh, and a number of other factors. And so uh, I've gotten increasingly out of shape. uh, And that's something I'd still really like to reverse. And so I'd uh, ask you to continue to pray for me in that area. Um, I've got a business trip coming up at, at the end of July into early August. Um, it's tentative at this point, but it's likely, and I'd be flying to India. Uh, I believe it would. I, th- I believe it's Pune, which is near Mumbai, uh, and I would. I'll be going over there for about two weeks, uh, during which I'll be kind of off the grid, probably, uh, and so you probably won't hear much from me on uh, on Facebook or anything like that. But please pray for safe travels, and that I wouldn't. Um, you know, fall into any harm or danger or uh, get any sort of get sick or anything like that. I, I, uh, I just I've never been there. I don't know what it's like. So please, um, uh, please do. Uh, please do pray. And if you have any advice or anything like that, let me know. Um, speaking of business, you know, things are going really well here at work. I, I haven't shared all my details about work um, with you guys. But, you know, my workload has dramatically increased in a good way. I mean, I've, I, I've, um, I've been performing well, and I'm establishing a really good uh, relationship with the team that I joined about a year ago or so. And um, you know, work couldn't be going more well, but it is taking up a lot of my time. I haven't been able to do as much, certainly not on this podcast as I would have liked. Um, and so, 
you know, please can, please pray for my work situation as well. Uh, but things have lightened up a little bit now, which is what, part of the reason that I'm getting this episode out and I'm trying to plan a couple more for the near future. Um, so hopefully you can expect some, some more episodes of the, the Apologetic Podcast, the Apologetics Podcast in the not too distant future. Um, one more thing to let you know about. I have a couple of debates lined up or being lined up. Uh, one of them is with a Catholic in mid-August on the topic of hell, um, which is kind of interesting. I, it wasn't, wouldn't have been my first choice to debate a Catholic given our uh, unbridgeable uh, differences when it comes to epistemology and authority. Um, but this, uh, but it was requested of me that uh, that I debate a Catholic on this topic, and the Catholic in question has agreed not to turn the debate into a debate on epistemology and authority, and so I'm looking forward to it. I'm also in the I'm also in the process of lining up a debate, a live in person debate, here in the Pacific Northwest where he and I live, um, with a gentleman that I'm becoming quickly friends with named Dr. Phil Fernandez. You can find more information about him at philfernandez.org. Um, that's f e r n a n d e s uh, dot org. And it's not you know nothing set in stone yet. Uh, but he and I have already. Um, discussed format and um, we're working on getting a venue uh and um you know like i said we're we're quickly becoming friends actually he's got a debate planned against um an arian named dave Barron, who's a sort of a um, acquaintance with um patrick novice who debated dr james white on this program some number uh, some time back on on a similar to- on the same topic really and uh f- you know phil is not terribly familiar with the kinds of agency shaliyah um, arguments that Arians, uh, sophisticated Arians like Dave Barron are likely to use. And so I've offered to um, assist Phil in his uh, preparations. But anyway, uh, should that debate come, you know, should he and I manage to secure a venue and a, and a date and time and stuff like that, the, the debate would be probably in late September. Uh, and it will be here in the Pacific Northwest. So if you would like to meet me or if you'd like to meet um, Dr. Fernandez, um, if you'd like to attend a debate on hell, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I'd love to, to see you uh, up here. So please, you know, mark that tentatively on your calendars and I'll get a specific date and time out as soon as possible. Now, if you want details on that debate with a Catholic, if you want to stay uh informed as or if you want to be informed as the debate details are worked out with Dr. Phil Fernandez and you can um, you know check us out at rethinkinghell.com that's where uh, the details for those things are and will be and speaking of rethinkinghell.com uh, that's the next promo in my uh, in my promo rotation so let's go ahead and listen to that now Listening to the Rethinking Hell podcast, where evangelical Christians discuss what the Bible says about hell and put conventional and controversial views to the test. To continue the discussion and find more resources on this topic, you can visit us online at www.rethinkinghell.com. Well, that was the voice of my friend and fellow re- uh, contributor at RethinkingHell.com, Dr. Glenn Peoples. 
who's been on the The Apologetics podcast a number of times. I, I would really encourage you to check RethinkingHell.com out. Uh, we, we continue to put out what I think are great uh, podcast episodes, including interviews with um, proponents of each side of the uh, of the hell debate, including traditionalists, uh, including Steve Jeffrey, uh, whom uh, I'll be interviewing here in a moment. And, uh, you know, we continue to put out great blog articles, um, you know, there's a forum there for you to get into discussions. We just recently posted a statement of faith or, or a statement of our beliefs there that, I, that you can check out if you'd like to know what we at RethinkingHell.com all agree on when it comes to the essentials of the Christian faith. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would highly recommend that you check it out. Like I said, that's where you can go to find more details about the debates that are being lined up for me. And also... Uh, we've got some big announcements, I think, for the, uh, you know, we've got some big announcements we'll be making in the not-too-distant future, and so if you go to RethinkingHell.com periodically, you'll be able to stay tuned for that. Uh, but anyway, we're at RethinkingHell.com, and you can search for the podcast in iTunes by just searching for Rethinking Hell. We've also got a Facebook page at Facebook.com slash RethinkingHell. We've got a Twitter at, Reth- at RethinkingHell, and we've got a YouTube channel now as well, uh, YouTube.com slash RethinkingHell. So be sure to check those things out, and with that, Let's go ahead and move in today's interview with my friend Steve Jeffrey. Jesus in my place. Jesus in my place. This is hope and this is grace. Jesus in my place. I'm joined today by my guest and friend, Dr. Steve Jeffrey pastor of Emmanuel Evangelical Church in Southgate, London. He's the co-author of Pierced for Our Transgressions, a book defending the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement, because of which he was recently invited to discuss the nature of the atonement on Unbelievable with Justin Brierley. In that discussion, Steve presented a brief version of the case for PSA and answered some objections from Alan Molyneux and Greg Boyd, two proponents of the Christus Victor view, but who deny that penal substitution is a valid understanding of Christ's work on the cross. So Steve joins me today as a follow-up to that discussion to go into more detail on PSA and answer some of the objections that he didn't have time to answer on that show. Uh, so thanks for joining me today, Steve. It's great to be with you again, Chris. You've been on my show before, uh, so we can skip some of the introductory stuff that we might have otherwise covered. But since we heard from you last, is there anything interesting that you're currently working on? Any radio shows you've recently been on, stuff like that? Um, well, there's been the <coughs> the unbelievable thing. I, I <laughs> When people say, is, is there anything interesting you've been working on? I just think... Well, the, the the average week in the life of an average minister is often very interesting. Um, just that, uh, so church has been great. Um, there are one or two other uh, opportunities that have come up in the uh, medium term, speaking at uh, other places, um, students here and there, and so on, which is always a uh, fun to get away and and see uh, what the Lord's doing in different places. It's one of the nice things about having um, studied at a uh, place where there have been other evangelical ministers going out from is that we all stay in touch with each other and um, that brings us together again uh, down the line. So, yeah, looking forward to some of those things. Um, Otherwise, it's the the week-to-week of um, serving the congregation here in North London. Great. Well, so catch us us up with sort of the the background to your recent appearance on Unbelievable. How how was it that that Justin got you involved in in that discussion? Well, Justin and I go back um, more years than either of us care to remember, probably. Um, we, we first met at Oxford uh, when we were both studying there. We, were, we did street evangelism together in a uh, 
group called the Christian Arts and Drama Society. And um, he did the drama and I did the evangelism because I'm not an actor, but I don't mind talking to people about Jesus. And um, there were a bunch of others there. And we kind of lost to- lost contact a little bit after university days. But um, then he, he called me out of the blue a few months ago uh, wanting to do a show. In fact, no, it was the show with you, I think, Chris. Um, that, that was the first time we'd made contact in a long time. And we realized during that telephone call that, yes, he was that Justin Briley and I was that Steve Jeffrey. Um, and so we've just stayed in touch in the last year or so, and uh, then he asked me to come and do this show um, with Alan Molyneux um, about the Doctrine of the Atonement. So, yeah, went down. Um, Premier Radio uh, over here in the UK is a fairly large um, evangelical radio station. It has a presence online, so your listeners there in the States will be able to get hold of it if you like to. Um, and I encourage you to do so. Some of the stuff is really good. Yeah, it is very good. I, you know, if you've listened to any of the episodes of my show, you know that I, in every episode, I'll play a promo for a show, and I've got the sort of rotation I go through, and his is one of those shows. I definitely recommend our yeah. listeners check yeah. it out. So tell us about how you uh, prepared for this discussion with Alan Molyneux. Did you check out anything that he had written? Did you talk to him in person, or, well, you know, at least online like you did with me before our appearance on Unbelievable? Because when I look through some of the so when I look through some of the entries in his blog, one of the things that really stood out to me was it seems that he kind of has a little bit of a chip on his shoulder with regards to a doctrine that you and I share, which is a, a Calvinism, a Cal- Calvinistic view of soteriology. So I'm just curious, what sort of preparation did you do, and was there anything that stood out to you as you looked into some of the writings of Alan Molyneux? Well, not really. We, we um, the show for Premier came up at pretty short notice, so we didn't have the opportunity that I like to have before debating somebody who I don't know to, to at least talk to each other. Mm. Um, I think it's just a, a basic Christian courtesy, really, to try and speak to somebody um, and to get to know them a little bit, and, rather than just going head-to-head uh, in public for the first time. But we didn't have the chance to do that because we just had a few days' notice. Um, and so, yeah, I had a glance at some things that Alan uh, has written on his blog, uh, but I wouldn't claim to have to be able to understand everything about where he's coming from just from reading a few blog posts. Um, he's he's not a Calvinist, so, and that did come, come up once or twice in the uh, in the show. Um, it, it's not a, it wasn't a huge deal at that point. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's it's something which is um, well the the debates between Calvinists and Arminians about um, the extent of the atonement do come up at certain points when you're trying to defend the doctrine of penal substitution. Um, and so, but we didn't. It wasn't a technical show, really, the Premier Radio thing, and we didn't really go there. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. You know, do do you find that when you discuss PSA? with Armenians, is it sometimes a little bit difficult to have common ground? I mean, because you and I, as Reformed believers, believe that uh, that uh, we, when we talk about the uh, the extent of the the efficaciousness, or, you know, the, the efficacy of the cross, we have, a, you know, specific people in mind. Uh, and mm, and yeah. when one, and it seemed like one of the big objections that was coming from Alan Molyneux was the idea that uh, if that were if the penal substitution view were correct, then it would lead toward universalism. In fact, you address that in the book. Um, That's right. So, so I mean, do, do you find that PSA, although I think you and I would consider Armenians our brothers for sure, do, do, you, do you find that PSA does cohere a little bit better with uh, reformed soteriology rather than Arminianism? Uh, yeah, well, I think it does. I mean, just to recap briefly for the sake of um, folks who are just not quite to speak on that debate, um, sometimes people criticise the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement, that Christ suffered the punishment for our sins, by saying, well, if he did that, that would mean that everybody will be saved. 
Um, but that's not the case, therefore clearly he didn't suffer the punishment for our sins. Mm. Now that objection presupposes something which I think is wrong, and Calvinists think is wrong, which is that Christ suffered the punishment for the sins of all people. That's what Arminians believe, and often it's what people assume that all Christians believe, but right. I don't think it's what the Bible teaches. So the response then comes back, um, no, we need to explain that um, in his death on the cross, Christ didn't die intending to pay the price, so to speak, for all people, but only for those who finally would be saved. That's the doctrine of limited atonement or particular redemption. And therefore, I think to defend penal substitutionary atonement against that universalism criticism, you need to defend the doctrine of uh, limited atonement. Yeah. Um, now, uh, that doesn't mean, I think, that every Arminian also denies penal substitution, far from it. I do think, however, that they're not able to affirm it consistently. Yeah. Um, and so sometimes that, that, that springs up. Um, I think here it's, it's important to distinguish between what somebody's actually saying they believe and what you think are the implications of what they believe. Right. Um, I might think that the implication of my brother Arminian, Arminian brother's uh, Arminianism is that he denies um, an objective satisfaction or atonement of any kind. Right. But I'm not going to impute that belief to him because I think he, like I, am inconsistent and um, I'd rather he's inconsistently right than consistently wrong. I'm not going to try and <laughs> force on him my understanding of where his view should lead to. So I think at that point, to be honest, it's just a good deal of Christian charity is in order. And uh, I've noticed that um, uh, doing evangelism, which is where often um, the doctrine of the atonement comes front and centre, doing evangelism with Christians from wildly different backgrounds, Bible-believing Christians who are charismatic and cessationist, um, who are Arminian and Calvinist, um, Baptist, Peter Baptist. We, I've had opportunities here in London to do all that and more. And um, once you define yourself as a Christian as against the world, as against the unbelieving world, that brings you together across quite a wide range of more nuanced doctrinal differences. And I think that's healthy. Yeah, I agree. So have you, have you received any feedback personally to, to your appearance on Unbelievable? And, and if you did, what, what, was the, you know, what did people have to say? Well, uh, on this occasion, it was rather nice. I think the only people who bothered to get in touch with me are people who appreciated it. I don't, <laughs> I don't <laughs> suppose for a moment that everybody agreed with me. It's a fairly diverse crowd, I think, who would um, tune into Premiere. Um, but yeah, people seemed encouraged. I think um, it was one of those shows where it didn't really go deep enough to help anybody make up their mind. Right. Um, and... Well, no, perhaps that's not quite right. It didn't go deep enough to persuade anybody to change their mind. Maybe that's um, helpful. But what it did, I think one or two people got in touch with me. Uh, one guy called James got in touch, and um, he mentioned that some of the stuff that we talked about in relation to Christ not being a, um, a separate, isolated third party from the believer, but actually being one with the believer, that was helpful to this guy. And I think often that's what happens, you know, in these, in these discussions, one or two things are said and it just kind of makes the connections for people. Um, and, and I think that was helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you did this uh, in, the, uh, in the episode of Unbelievable and, you know, we're going to cover some of the ground uh, that was covered in that uh, discussion and, as well as some of the things that are covered in your book uh, in hopes that people will go check out both that discussion as well as your book. But to, to get things started, uh, can, you sort of, can you define for us briefly the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement? Because it's a long phrase that we're going to replace with the acronym PSA throughout the rest <laughs> of this interview probably. But yeah, just sort of define that for us to set the stage. Sure. Well, how I th think it's helpful to define the doctrine of penal substitution is like this. Um, it states that God gave himself in the person of his son 
to suffer instead of us the death and punishment and curse due to fallen humanity as the penalty for sin. So, to put it more simply, it means that Jesus' death was uh, penal, that is to say, had to do with punishment. He suffered punishment in death. And secondly, it was a substitution. He suffered punishment as a substitute for us in our place. So Jesus was punished in our place, you might say. That's the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. Okay. Now, uh, Alan Molyneux, who was on the show with you, as well as a clip from Greg Boyd, uh, these are both proponents of another view of the atonement called Christus Victor, which is uh, a phrase that a lot of my listeners might not be familiar with. I wasn't familiar with it until somewhat recently. So can you you define for us what the Christus Victor view of the atonement is? Yeah, sure. Um, The Christus Victor view pictures Christ as a conqueror. Uh, Christ the victor. Christ the conqueror. Um, And it's often set in opposition to a penal substitutionary understanding of the atonement. Mm. Um, perhaps that's because the phrase, uh, at least the popular use of it, originates with a book by, the, by that title, Christus Victor, by Gustav Aulen, in which he said Christ is the victor, and he also denied the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. So these two views are seen as exclusive. Um, but you've got to say that... To see Christ as a conqueror, as a victor, as somebody who sets his people free, is by no means uh, uh, antithetical towards, is no means opposed to Christ as a penal substitute. Mm. We can say, as I I certainly would, that um, Christ is the victor, Christ is the conqueror of sin and death and Satan, and that he did so by suffering in our place the punishment for uh, our sins. So I think in, in that sense, the, um, the two perspectives sit side by side very well. And it's just helpful to clarify, if, if somebody says, I hold a Christus Victor doctrine of atonement, well, the first thing to ask is, okay, that's great. Um, let's just make sure we understand each other. Does that mean that you deny other perspectives? Right. And if somebody says, yes, they deny other perspectives, I think that's problematic. But it's not problematic because they're affirming a Christus Victor view. It's problematic because they're denying other things that the Bible says. Right, and, and this came up in, in the discussion. I was, I was going to ask you, uh, is, it, is it a question of either or? Uh, because in, in the discussion with Molyneux and Justin Brierley and, and with that clip from Greg Boyd, you, put, you just used an analogy of a diamond to explain the, the beauty and the multifaceted nature of the atonement. Can you explain that for us a little bit? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I should um, give credit where credit's due. This, um, my old boss, Richard Coken, who's the uh, senior pastor of the co-mission churches here in London, mainly in South and Central London, um, uh, he uses this analogy of the diamonds to describe the gospel. Uh, but I think it, it works equally well as to describe um, Christ's accomplishment of our redemption on the cross. Um, picture the atoning work of Christ as a, a glorious, glistening, precious jewel, a diamond. And you can gaze at the wonder of this jewel from any number of different angles. You might say there are different facets to the diamond. There's one facet which is the liberation from sin and death. Uh, Christ the victor facet. And then if you turn the, the diamond round slightly, you see a different facet. You see Christ as the example for us to follow. And then you turn the diamond round slightly and you see another perspective on this one diamond, um, the penal substitutionary perspective, that Christ suffered the punishment for our sin and so we're liberated from guilt. And what this helps us to do is to see that, uh, this is perhaps the most important point of the illustration, to see that these different biblical perspectives are not exclusive. Mm. They can sit side by side. And actually, the best way to appreciate 
the glory of what Christ has done is to put them side by side and see how they relate to each other, see how each of them sheds light on the other. That The light that enters through one facet of the diamond bounces around 15 times inside and then exits through another facet. And uh, the different perspectives we might have on the work of Christ each shed light on each other. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, you know, I, one of the things I was gonna, I didn't let you know about this beforehand, but just sort of occurred to me is, are, are there are there models of the atonement or, or views of the atonement that you think are in fact not part of this multifaceted diamond? I mean, just for example, I'm, I'm familiar, although I'm not sure if I understand, if I remember the terminology. There, there's one view of the atonement in, in which uh, in which G- Satan was paid. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. something in order to um, purchase us from him. But that seems to me to be wholly unbiblical. I mean, maybe I'm wrong about that, but are, are there views of the atonement that you think that are out there are in fact unbiblical and we shouldn't consider to be part of this multifaceted diamond? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, it, uh, to quote, <laughs> I can't remember who said this, um, there are however many ways there are of being right, there are many more ways of being wrong. Mm. Um, and um, the, the view you mentioned is one of them. Um, some people have rather unfortunately um, taken the ransom terminology from scripture think of um, Mark uh, 10.45 for example that son of man didn't come to s- uh, be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom mm. and what they've said is ah well maybe um, Jesus is paying the ransom to the one who keeps us enslaved that is the devil maybe Jesus had to pay the devil with his own life to, to set us free now that's an example of you know, well-meaning theology done badly um, God owes nothing to the devil except punishment. Yeah. Um, and the, um, I think that's John Stott that in his superb book, The Cross of Christ, makes that point very well. And if you're, if after what I say you're still confused, um, then I hope your listeners will go and, and check that book out. Um, but what that's, it's an example of doing something where you can take a biblical thought and develop it in an unbiblical way. And this is why we always need the Bible to kind of control how we're putting things together. Um, and C.S. Lewis made a similar mistake. In his um, Narnia books, um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the most famous of them, uh, he places the uh, phrase on the lips of the white witch, who kind of stands for Satan in this um, dramatic uh, narrative, with um, the white witch as Satan and Aslan as the kind of Christ figure, the lion. And at one point, the white witch says, that human creature, referring to Edmund, a, a sinner, a sinful child, a wicked, nasty child, that human creature is mine. Mm. His blood is my property. And I think, I don't know whether C.S. Lewis actually believed in that kind of ransom to the devil theory, but if he didn't, he certainly did a good job of um, popularising it. And it's it's unfortunate when you hear that in sermon illustrations because it's such a brilliant story but it's it's somewhat spoiled by some bad theology yeah so so yeah you if there are times there are ways of putting together um the bible's teaching in a in an unbiblical way or just misunderstanding things um and and just to think of one other while we're on the subject sure. um uh, sometimes people talk about jesus absorbing the consequences of sin uh, the, the verb absorbing I just find myself puzzled by that because mm. I can't think what that means. I mean, I think the way people put it, that they're, they're meaning to say something true, which is that Jesus suffered the consequences of sin. Mm-hmm. But by saying Jesus absorbed the consequences of sin, they make it look, they kind of take God out of the picture, actually. They make it look like a wholly passive act rather than seeing the cross as um, God the Father 
punishing God the Son for the sins of the world. Right. Now, maybe that's deliberate. Maybe people actually want to do that. They'd rather talk about Jesus absorbing the consequence of sin. Um, but I think that's a mistake because, ironically, it's introducing into the biblical narrative and into biblical theology, systematic, biblical systematic theology, a term, absorbing, that has absolutely no place in, in the Bible in terms of explaining Christ's work on the cross. It's, and so, at one level, yeah, there are lots and lots of different perspectives on the cross of Christ, but that's not a license to, uh, you know, run away with any which interpretation we like. We need to be constrained by the way that the Bible talks about what it talks about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, you, you mentioned something there, uh, systematic theology. If I recall correctly, and I might be wrong about this, uh, but but this certainly comes up in other conversations on this topic. One of the things that Molyneux said at one point was he, he almost, if I remember correctly, he said you were being a little too systematic. And, and, and it got me, you know, I mean, do, do you think that... Yeah. Why do you think it's important that we do, in fact, be systematic when we approach this topic or, or any other? I mean, why why should we not let ourselves flow with the, or move with the ebb and flow of Scripture without trying to make things cohere? Well, uh, I think in one sense we should move with the ebb and flow of Scripture. So I think um, the Bible is you know, 66 books long for a reason. It's because there are many, many different ways of talking about many, many different things. And we don't just have one type of literature in the Bible. You've got gazillions of different types of literature in the Bible. You've had people on your show talking about biblical genres, I'm sure. If you haven't, you should have, and um, maybe we should talk about that one day. <laughs> but uh, that's, you know, the Bible is multifaceted, you know, and we give lip service to that, but just read through the, the first five books of the Bible and see how different it is from anything else we're used to and anything else, even differences within itself. So, yeah, we should move for the ebb and flow of Scripture. But we should be systematic in the sense of not unsystematic. Mm. I, I, I want to be systematic as opposed to disorganised. Not systematic as opposed to biblical, but at a certain point, one has to ask and answer questions like, what must I do to be saved? Yeah. Um, uh, if I'm not to suffer the punishment for my sin, where is God's justice? Or who has suffered for my sins? Or um, does God love me? Or... Um, can I be sure that I'm saved? Now, questions like that are, properly speaking, systematic questions. They're questions which require us to pull together things that we know from all over the Bible and synthesize them, systematize them, put them in a kind of logical order and answer those questions in a way that makes sense to people today. And I don't have any hesitation or uh, uncertainty about using the word logical there or systematic. Because if the alternative to systematic and logical is unsystematic and illogical, <laughs> then I think there's, you know, it's just no contest. So, yes, biblical, systematic, organised, logical, coherent, flowing with the ebb and flow of scripture and then trying to pull the whole thing together. Yeah, that's I think how we should do theology. Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, you know whether whether somebody takes a very high view of scripture to the point of inerrancy, like I do, or whether somebody just wants to sort of affirm <laughs> a infallibility of scripture. Either way, we're dealing with one God who inspired all these authors of the scriptures, right. and right. you would expect a consistent message. And if there's not a consistent message, it would call into question. Exactly. Uh, exactly. You know, when you have inconsistencies, which one is right and which one is wrong? There would just be no way. Well, that's exactly right. Yeah, and this is the. Sometimes it's suggested that. Um, 
pe- people who criticise what they call systematic theology, well, I'd, first I want them to go and read some. So don't, please, nobody criticise systematic theology until you've read a little bit of John Owen, a little bit of Francis Turretin, a little bit of Jonathan Edwards. You've got to read Jonathan Edwards and some John Calvin. And Herman Barbank, read those guys for five years, then come back and cr- criticise systematic <laughs> theology. But um, the, the point I think um, you want to make is that... Um, systematic theology flows out of a reverence for scripture it's not that there are people who love the bible and there are people who love systematics or maybe there are but they're crazy (laughs) people i mean i mean if rather what you've got is people who love the bible and who regard every single word of it as flowing from the mouth of the almighty god who doesn't lie and therefore because he is consistent with himself his own consistency expressed in his word requires and encourages us to do systematic theology. Yeah. God doesn't change his mind. And if he seems to say one thing in one place and then he seems to say something else somewhere else, then that's, that reveals that there is a story to be told about why that change takes place and how it fits within the one plan of God. So systematic theology arises from the central conviction that all of God's word, every single last jot and tittle of it, is truth from the living God. Yeah, absolutely. Well, okay, so let me give you an opportunity now to uh, to use this, uh, you know, fully consistent, uh, truthful word of God to present a brief positive biblical case for uh, for not just substitution, because that's something we're going to talk about a little bit later, that, that uh, Christus Victor folks seem to want to say that they're not denying substitution, but, but for penal substitutionary atonement. Now give us sort of a brief positive biblical case for that. Okay, um, well, no. <laughs> but a, a, a brief... Positive biblical cases. Here's the problem. If if you um, answer a question, I, I will do in a second. Okay, don't worry. I'm, I'm, but let me, let me give you my. The caveat first is this: um, if somebody says, "Give me the case briefly," and then you give like a two, three verse, you know, exposition, then what's the next thing we're going to be accused of? Proof texting. Mm. Now, I don't want to give anybody the impression that the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement arises from half a dozen verses in the middle of Romans three or one Peter two. Yeah. So how do you, can you see the problem? Now, what this means is um, in the book that um, Pierce for Our Transgressions that I worked on with um, Andrew and Mike, um, we tried to present numerous different biblical arguments from different parts of Scripture, Exodus, Leviticus, Mark and John, Romans, Galatians, 1 Peter, um, because we wanted, Isaiah 53, of course, we wanted people to see that this is woven into the biblical story. So that's the first thing to say. Please, and I especially say this, I know that some of your listeners will have encountered the claim that penal substitution atonement rests on half a dozen misinterpreted verses at the end of Romans 3. It doesn't. It doesn't. And even if it did, and even if those verses are misinterpreted, well, how about the other 4,000 texts you could turn to? How about the story and the shape of the whole Bible? So, please, let's get that clear in our minds to begin with. Um, but, okay, <laughs> having, been, having been cheeky, and uh, let, let, me, let me try and give you a flavour for this. Sure. Um, so think of the Exodus to begin with. Now, here's a formative event in the life of the people of God. And the, the event within the Exodus, recorded in the book of Exodus, that defined Israel as a nation was their escape from Egypt during the Passover. Now, let's just examine what happened here. The Israelites had been miserably enslaved for generations in Egypt, enslaved by wicked, idolatrous people. 
Uh, and God rose up um, to lead the people out, to deliver them by the hand of Moses. And he did so by striking the land of Egypt with a series of plagues, uh, a plague of gnats, of flies, of blood, striking all the gods of the land of Egypt. And these plagues culminated in a final tenth terrible plague, the plague on the firstborn. Every firstborn son in the land of Egypt would die. But this plague was different to all the previous ones. The Lord made it clear that unless something was done about it, all the firstborn sons of the Israelites would die too. Now, why is that? Well, we learn later in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 20, that the Israelites had participated in the Egyptians' idolatry. So the the Israelites needed deliverance not just from their tyrannical slave masters, the Egyptians, but also they needed a rescue from their own sin and idolatry. They were participants in Israel's, in in Egypt's wickedness. Mm. And the Lord said, unless a substitute lamb is killed, the firstborn sons of the Israelites would die too. And so you've got to imagine... um, uh, the, the scene, each, each household was told to slaughter a lamb and to daub the blood from the lamb over the doorposts of the house so that when the angel of death went through the land of Egypt to seek out the firstborn sons of every household, he would see a death has already taken place here. In the houses where the lamb had been slain, a death had already occurred, a substitute had died in the place of the firstborn. Now imagine you know, the eldest son, my oldest son's called Ben, uh, Dad, have you killed the lamb yet? Oh, no, don't worry, son, I'll do it later. You know, <laughs> Dad, it's nine o'clock. Uh, are you going to do that? Yeah, sure, I'm watching the news on the TV. Give me a break and I'll just, you know. <laughs> the children would have been pretty determined. Dad, you're going to sacrifice the lamb, aren't you? Yes. Okay. And the lamb went through, the, the angel of death went through the land of Egypt, um, striking down all the firstborn sons of Egypt for their wickedness. And he would have done the same for the Israelites if the substitute lamb had not died in their place. Mm. Now, the Apostle Paul in reflecting on this in 1 Corinthians 5 says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been satisfied. 1 Peter 1 says that Jesus was a lamb without blemish and defect. In Mark 14, there's a Passover meal narrated, um, but there's no lamb present. The lamb is seated at the table with him and he holds out the cup of the covenant and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. You can see what's happening here. The, the defining event of Israel's existence as a people, the Passover and the liberation from slavery in Egypt, is being uh, fulfilled and drawn together and focused down on the death of Christ, the Passover lamb, for the people of God. And that death would have been the death of the people of God themselves for, because they had shared in the idolatry of the people of Egypt, just like we have shared in the wickedness of the world. We need a lamb to die in our place, and Jesus has. Very good. Yeah, I think that's, I absolutely agree. I, I'm curious, though, are there any texts that you can think of and, and which you talk about in your book that, that bring out, I mean, this sort of is implied in, in everything you've just discussed, but for those who want mm. to see something very specific, are there any texts that you could think of where it specifically talks about Jesus bearing a penalty or punishment uh, as that Passover lamb? In other words, not just bear, not just dying as you know a sacrificed lamb, but mm. bearing punishment uh, that somebody else deserved. Yeah, I mean, you could, uh, in one sense, you just keep working through the biblical material. Um, think, for example, of the the material in Leviticus. Um, on the Day of Atonement, 
um, the, the Day of Atonement rituals in, um, number, in Leviticus uh, 16 are, uh, are set in contrast to what happens in Leviticus 10 when Nadab and Abihu offered unholy fire to the Lord, the two sons of Aaron, and they were consumed. Wrath, fire came out from the Lord and consumed them for their wickedness in daring to approach the holy God in some other way than what he'd appointed. And that's in the beginning of Leviticus 16. That event is recalled again. And the, the right way to approach God on the Day of Atonement is set in contrast to them. Or again, think of a very different part of um, Scripture. Think of the book of Mark. Um, and Mark, uh, Jesus' reference in Mark 10 to the cup I drink. Um, that cup, that's the cup he feared in Gethsemane, by the way. That every Christian martyr through the ages who's died without a tear in their eye and bravely, that Jesus was terrified, absolutely petrified. And he was terrified of something which those Christian martyrs never had to face. You've got to ask yourself the question, what was that? What that was, was what he referred to as the cup I drink, which is a... A terrible phrase uh, taken from the Psalms and from Isaiah and Ezekiel. It refers to the cup of the wrath of the Lord poured out upon the wicked. All the wicked of the earth drink it down to its dregs. And that's mm. what Jesus feared drinking. Or again, think of later in Mark, um, Jesus being handed over, paradidomi. It's a, a word that's used to hand somebody over to punishment. Or uh, the darkness that covered the land in um, at the end of Mark's Gospel of the cross of Christ, that darkness, we've seen darkness, supernatural darkness before. Supernatural darkness comes when the, the heavenly lights themselves are put out, which is, in Isaiah 13, it happens because the wrath of God is being poured out upon a wicked king. Well, here we've got the wrath of the Lord being poured out upon a king who is standing in the place of his people, a righteous king who has become sin for us. Yeah. Um, so again, I mean, you... I think it was B.B. Warfield who said, you know, in relation to um, this, he was in relation to the inerrancy of scripture, I, I think I remember rightly. He said, you know, you can dodge a few rocks, but you can't avoid an avalanche. <laughs> and, and an avalanche is exactly what we have. When it comes to biblical texts which talk about um, Christ standing in our place to suffer the punishment we deserve for our sins, biblical texts, an entire, entire uh, biblical narratives, whole swathes of the biblical story which hang on this. Um, I think it's, I, I don't know how you're going to read the Bible and avoid this. I know, I'm absolutely right, that this isn't the only thing that Jesus was accomplishing. The gospel and the, the atoning work of Christ is a many faceted diamond, but we mustn't blunt or dull this facet of the diamond of the atoning work of Christ. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so, you know, one of the things that I sometimes hear uh, from critics of penal substitution is uh, is they'll claim that this is not something that um, uh, that was taught by the earliest Christians, you know, by the earliest fathers. Uh, but you address this in a chapter of your book. So can you tell us uh, what, what sort of early history does this doctrine or, or, you know, does this doctrine find in the writings of the earliest fathers? Well, I mean, uh, here it's... Um, uh, it's somewhat invidious to, to go at this exercise. You, um, we all recognise, firstly, that we have access to quite a limited range of early church material. Mm. Um, secondly, that it comes from and is written in a, a theological world somewhat different from ours and with particular political concerns in the first three or four centuries. Um, and, uh, and also um, that uh, we, they had not... Um, got round to articulating everything 
mm. with the precision and detail that later became mainstream, um, which is why people find in uh, Augustine, for example, support for Roman Catholic doctrines of the Church. Um, now, I, yeah, okay, well, there's a debate to have later. But um, <laughs> the now, I don't think this means that they were fools. I just think they they had other things to do besides do theology, and they'd only had three or four centuries to do it in. In twenty thousand years' time, if the Lord spares this world that long, then people will look back at us as people in the early church, probably less productive people than those in the third and fourth centuries. Um, all that is to say that. I don't think it should surprise us if uh, not everything is articulated with crystal clarity at every stage of church history. Mm. That said, it is astonishing how much testimony you find in very early Christian documents to Christ um, suffering the curse of death, particularly the Galatians 3 language of the curse of, of uh, the curse of the um, uh, being hanged upon a tree that the curse of death being suffered by Jesus in the place of his people, you find it in Justin Marty, you find it in Eusebius, you find it elsewhere. Um, I'm not now claiming that you get the kind of rigour and detail that you find in someone like John Owen or Francis Turretin. Of course not. Nobody would, be, nobody would claim that. But the, you can clearly see the logic and the structure, particularly in someone like Athanasius. In Athanasius, you can see how he's starting to pull together the themes of God's truthfulness, um, God's justice, God needing to remain true to what he'd said about uh, sin bringing death into the world and yet still redeem a people. And he started to build these together into what we now recognise as a doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. Yeah. You know, one of the things that, um, uh, that I've noticed is that the, the earliest fathers they tended to write mostly, and maybe I'm wrong about this. You can tell me if you if you get a different impression. But they tended to write mostly in response to uh, challenges in that time, you know. And so, for example, you see a lot of emphasis on uh, on answering the objections from Arians, uh, from critics of uh, uh, yeah, from yeah. the idea that Jesus was God. Uh, and you also find them writing against people who say that Jesus didn't truly come in the flesh, you know, for example. So, yeah, yeah. Is, is is you think it's possible that maybe um, one of the reasons why there isn't the the clarity that we might hope to find there is maybe there wasn't a lot of challenges to uh, this this doctrine or the early forms of it. Yeah, I think I think you're very likely right. I think um, there is something to be said for the idea that um, the the development of doctrine through church history um, follows a kind of logic, which means that you encounter certain issues first and other issues only later. Mm. So I don't think it's any accident, for example, that the very earliest controversies in the church were about the person of Christ. Yeah. What are you going to start talking about? You know, the, the Christian faith is about Jesus. Whoever comes to me and believes in me, he shall have eternal life. And, and so clearly one's going to be struggling from the very outset with issues of how, how can this man be uh, the word of God, the Logos? How can he be the revelation of the being of God? How can he be God in the flesh and still be in the flesh without there being a change in God and without his humanity being somewhat less than human or more than human or different from our humanity? So those are the first questions you're going to encounter. Um, and then Trinitarian questions flow out of that in the next few centuries and so on. So I think that you do get this natural development of the questions that people are asking um, through uh, church history. At the same time, yeah, you're right that occasionally you do get um, the kinds of uh, other questions like those that provoked um, early 
uh, statements on the character of the atonement. You get a, a variety of those things as well. But often they're in a, in a context where, like you said, the, the pressing concerns are elsewhere. Um, and so I, I think in... in maybe, maybe the, the, the bottom line is this. When we come to the early church, we should be very interested in what they say we shouldn't read too much into what they don't say. Yeah. You know, the fact that somebody doesn't say something doesn't mean they deny it. And also we'd want to be quite careful in extrapolating from what they say. Um, we, uh, because what can then be done is what is sometimes done, like, for example, with Calvin on the extent of the atonement. I don't think he really addresses the extent of the atonement, to be honest. I really don't. I, I, think, I, I think I know what his position implies, but I'm not going to be so bold as to say that he affirmed in his writings the doctrine of uh, particular redemption. And I think you've got to be clear about that. Similarly, um, with the early church fathers, you don't want to read into what they're saying more than is actually there. But again, that said, with that in mind particularly, it is astonishing how clear the early church fathers are, particularly in applying this curse of death language to Jesus as our substitute. Yeah, I wanted to pick up on that because another thing that we should be careful about when we're looking at the earliest fathers is, you know, they oftentimes just, and I don't use this word in a negative way, they oftentimes just regurgitated biblical language. And they, and they right. didn't elaborate using language of their own, which means that if they, if they uh, talk about the, the curse of the, of the law, um, you know, hanging on a tree, if that can be argued biblically to be support for penal substitutionary atonement, then right. we have at least some reason to believe that when they were using it, when the early fathers were quoting it, they intended it in that way. Um, so, yeah, I mean, care should be taken. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, I think that we can we can extrapolate yeah. some things from what they have to say. Yeah. Now, now, in terms of the believer's life, you know, what, what yeah. sort of impact does... Uh, penal substitution have or can it have on the believer's life? Because one of the things that um, that both Molyneux and Boyd, uh, you know, objected to was, you know, they, they would say things like it doesn't really, it's uninspiring, it, it doesn't inspire in anything in, in the life of the believer except perhaps cheap grace or or maybe even inspires violence. Uh, so, so yeah. what do you see as the impact on the believer's life from the doctrine of penal substitution? Well, first, I think you've got to um, uh, concede the point that. Uh, a caricatured or sloppy or shallow doctrine of uh, penal substitutionary atonement can uh, lead to a, a kind of cheap grace. You can make out the death of Christ as a kind of free ticket to paradise, um, which means that ev everything you do and everything you're about to do, because that's really what you're thinking about, um, all those things, they're going to get paid for, so, so do what you like. And now, let's just recognise that for the caricature that it is. Yeah. Um, I think it is possible to present almost anything in a bad way so as to produce destructive pastoral consequences. Um, and so that's not a unique feature of the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. Um, I think uh, what's unique about penal substitutionary atonement in this regard is that it keeps being blamed for things by its critics, which its more sophisticated advocates would be horrified by. Yeah. So um, uh, that's important to clear up to begin with. That said, let's just think through, rather than thinking critically, think positively a little bit. What are, what does flow in a pastoral sense from this uh, doctrine? Let me give it a, a couple of examples. Uh, in suffering for the sins of the world, Jesus didn't merely take upon himself the curse that suffered individual human beings. 
the, the language of curse, which is in Galatians 3, I've mentioned this a few times, Galatians 3, Deuteronomy 27, um, uh, traces right back to Genesis 3 um, and the curse on the whole world because of the sin of our first parents. Now what this means is that in liberating his people, Christ is liberating the world from sin and death and decay and, and wickedness and corruption. From this, I think, flows a natural, should flow a natural Christian concern for justice in wider social contexts. Mm. In other words, what Jesus was doing was he wasn't just coming along and trying to figure out a way of saving a bunch of individual people whilst leaving the world in which they inhabited unchanged. No, he wants those people to go out and change the world. And again, it's ironic that sometimes a concern for um, uh, social transformation is somehow put at odds with the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement, as if you have one or the other. I think quite the contrary. Jesus, suffered, Jesus put a, took upon himself the curse on an old and decaying world and an old and decaying way of life. And in uh, suffering for individuals' sins, he opened the way for them to begin a new world. It's as if he, he exhausted the claims of sin and death on one world. He took it into the grave with him and buried it there and rose again in the power of the Spirit in his resurrection to begin a new world. And anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And therefore, as newly created beings, members of the new people of God, the church, we don't just stop with having our sins forgiven, glorious though that is, we're, we are expected to go out into the world and live differently. We're expected to go out into the world and make an impact in the world where we live. And that will depend on what we're able to do. What happens around us will depend on who we are and on the providences that God brings across our path and what our uh, roles are. But I think we should expect to see over generations and generations the church making a positive social impact. Historically, that's certainly been the case. Think about in uh, in uh, the Western world, the abolition of slavery. Mm. Or think about, um, uh, in this in my country, um, uh, many of the hospitals in London are called Saint something, Saint George's, Saint something else. Well, there's a reason for that, because they were started by Christians yeah. who realised that um, the forgiveness of sins is the glorious beginning and it's not the end. The transformation of the world is the end that Jesus is driving at. I mean, so there's an example. Um, uh, and that's an example which is to do with wider social and political and national structures. Let, let me, since you asked about this issue, let me pick up on one which I think is also significant for individuals. Mm. Um, uh, one of the things that it, every minister will know, and pretty much I think every Christian at some point in their lives will know, is struggles with what we call assurance. Yeah. How, how can I know that those words, your sins are forgiven, truly apply to me? Um, how can I trust God when he says there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus? Because to be honest, there are days when I look at my life and I almost can't believe it's true. How can I, how can I trust God in the face of the wickedness of my sin? How can I trust him to forgive me? Well, the Lord values his own truthfulness so much that he sent his own son to die to uphold it. This is one mm. thing that Athanasius draws out in his book on the Incarnation. 
um, the sin of man placed God, as it were, in a in a quandary. It's not a quandary from God's point of view, but it's a quandary from our point of view as we consider what's he going to do. Because he has said that sin will bring death. How then is he going to liberate humanity from death since men and women have all sinned? I mean, he could just go back on his word, actually. He could just say, well, you know, that thing in Genesis 2, I, I, I was kind of only half taking that seriously. Forget about that. <laughs> but then, where that would leave us, that would leave us forever doubting the truthfulness of God. And God values his truthfulness so much that he will give himself in death in order to uphold his truthfulness. One of the great implications of what Athanasius draws out about the pers- purpose of the death of Christ is it shows us how, God, how highly God values his own truthfulness, his own faithfulness, his own fidelity. So now when he says to you, okay, your sins are forgiven, those are words uttered by the God who values truthfulness so highly that he died to uphold it. So I think you can be sure that he means it. Yeah, that's very powerful. You know, I, I would add to that, not quite maybe as, as powerful, uh, but, but they, they impact me. Um, you know, the, the the knowing that God is just and will justly punish right. sin is a great encouragement encouragement for me. You know, now maybe I'm being uh, vindictive or something like that, but but I I am it encourages me to know that some that the great injustices in this world uh, will in fact be punished or were uh, punished you know in in the punishment of Christ so for example if Hitler did in fact uh, if he if he this is hypothetical I'm sure it didn't happen but but right, if Hitler right. had converted by the time that he had died and if he had truly placed his faith in Christ then Christ then that punishment for the millions of people who were killed by by Hitler and his regime is not something that went unpunished and conversely if he didn't then that punishment uh that 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 penalty won't go unpaid so i find that very encouraging and and, and on the other hand you know one of the things that boyd said in that discussion on unbelievable was that it it could even that psa can even inspire violence but quite the contrary to me it inspires compassion for those for those who are lost who if they don't turn to christ are going to face the just punishment for their sin and it causes me to want to reach out to them and and to love them and to uh uh to, to be the best apologist that i can so that they will embrace the truth of Christ. And so exactly. far from inspiring violence, you know, it, I think it inspires compassion. No, I think you're quite right. And, and that, that objection, I, I would say it baffles me. It, it doesn't baffle me. I think it's just a misunderstanding. I think people, well, it's a misunderstanding, okay? I mean, mm-hmm. the, here's, here's the key thing. Um, when, when Christ looked down on the world, he saw people being violent to one another. That's the sin in... Um, one of the sins in um, Genesis 6, all the thoughts of their hearts were evil all the time, the land was filled with violence and so on. Now, um, it's to that violent world that the Son of God came to give his life up as a ransom. That's the example which has inspired missionaries to give their lives for the people whom they're trying to serve, sometimes to die at the hands of the people they're trying to save. It's because they understood that Jesus came into a world where people hated each other and people hated him. Yeah. And so to to see the Son of of God experiencing at the humanly speaking at the hands of this is um, Acts chapter four at the hands of Herod and Pontius Pilate and all the leaders of the Jews uh, to see him experiencing that enmity that hatred from them and to do so as a way of suffering at the hands of the Lord the punishment due for our sins 
it inspires us precisely to go out with the same kind of non-violence that Jesus went out with, right. with compassion to people who, given half a chance, will slit our throats. Yep. And that's what Jim Elliot did. That's what many missionaries before and since have done because they knew what Jesus had done. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm going to start going through a whole bunch of objections, some of which came up during Unbelievable, some of which you address in your book, some of which I you know, found elsewhere. Um, and I want to start with this claim that, if I, if I understand correctly, sort of originated with or was a phrase that was coined by Steve uh, Chalk. Um, I'm not familiar with him, uh, but I am aware that he's been the source a couple of times of some controversy in your neck of the woods. So this came up toward the beginning of Unbelievable, uh, but I don't think it was ever really addressed. But you do address it in your book. How do you respond to the yeah. objection from people like Chalk that PSA amounts to something like cosmic child abuse? Yeah, okay. Well, um, first, credit where credit's due and where it's not. Um, Steve Chalk, in his book, The Lost Message of Jesus, was popularizing a, uh, a phrase, cosmic child abuse, which had been around for several decades in um, the liberal theological world. Mm. Um, uh, and this is what had happened with a lot of criticisms of penal substitutionary atonement. They've been kicking around for a generation or two in commentaries that nobody reads. Um, but what the problem with Steve Chalk's book was not that it said anything particularly new, but that it said it publicly and to evangelicals. And Steve Chalk um, had done some good work in uh, previous years. And you know, 20 years ago, he was doing great stuff in um, Christian youth work and so on. Uh, and so people took him seriously. Mm which is a bit of a problem when he starts describing God, God's son giving himself on the cross as cosmic child abuse. Yeah. Um, now, the claim being made here is that God the Father is like an abusive dad who you know, comes home drunk one night, flies into a rage and beats up on his son because, well, he's just the only guy there. It doesn't matter that he wasn't guilty, but that his son was, just the, was handy, small, vulnerable, and so Dad the bully could beat up on his son. And we rightly recoil in horror at the thought of that, 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 that a father could beat up his own kid because, you know, well, you, you can tell what I think of that, and I'm sure your listeners think the same. Now, the question that arises, well, isn't that exactly what um, God the Father is doing in the atonement? The answer is, no, it isn't. Nobody is saying that the son was dragged unwillingly by God the Father to his death. Mm. Quite the contrary, he gave himself. This is a triune act where God gave himself in the person of the Son to suffer at the hands of the Father by the um, instrumentality of wicked men. This is Acts 4 again. It's worth reading that prayer when the believers come back together. And that, that the believers come back together after um, two of them have been released from prison and they say um, that Herod and Pontius Pilate and the leaders of the Jews and so on conspired against your holy servant Jesus whom you, our Heavenly Father, appointed. Indeed, they did what your hand had decided would happen. So God the Father and these wicked men and women were active together. And the Son went willingly I give myself as a ransom for many. That's the crucial point. No um, abused child, except perhaps one so tortured and so manipulated as to think it was the right thing to do, would willingly give himself to be beaten up by his dad. The Son of God was not tortured in his mind by foolishly and unwillingly being dragged to the cross. He knew exactly what he was doing. Uh, you think about um, in perhaps the best 
one-liner that Jesus utters um, to clarify this and to put this objection to bed for good and all. Remember in Luke, Luke's Gospel when he begins um, his journey um, to Jerusalem and he set his face to Jerusalem. Luke's Gospel turns a corner at that point, chapter 9. It turns a corner at that point and resolutely, in the face of all this opposition, the only one who's absolutely determined to go to his death is Jesus. Jesus went willingly, knowing what was in store for him, but doing it out of love for us. Yeah. And obviously, he's not a child. (laughs) That's important to recognize as well. Well, yeah. (laughs) Well, that was part one of my interview with Steve Jeffrey on penal substitutionary atonement. Hope you enjoyed it. I'm going to try to get the second half published within a week, so I hope you'll stay tuned and join me for the next episode of the The Apologetics Podcast. Until then... (laughs) 